This is a Federal News Network podcast. Just under 100 proposals made their way to the Technology Modernization Fund Board by that June 2nd deadline for accelerated consideration. These business cases are vying for some of that $1 billion Congress added to the TMF in the American Rescue Fund Act. In his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about how some agencies are approaching their TMF proposals and how closely Congress is watching. Jason joins me now with the latest. And Jason, with just under 100 proposals, that's 10 times more than they ever got in the past. Is that about what the White House and the TMF board were expecting? In many ways, that's exactly what they were expecting. I remember when the federal CIO, Claire Monterana, spoke maybe about April, May timeframe, and we asked that question, well, how many proposals? And she said, just about 100 or, or so. And from what I'm hearing from multiple sources, that that's actually very true. Uh, they got just under 100. Uh, how many? 98, 99, 97? I'm not sure, Tom, but they definitely got a lot. They were so inundated with proposals because I think a lot of agencies including Homeland Security Department. And for the first time, the Defense Department submitted proposals. Maria wrote, the deputy federal CIO, says they are they had to, they had to really get ready for this influx of proposals, but not lose any rigor. Here's wrote speaking at a recent MITRE event. And with the TMF proposals, we're connecting the dots, tying the investments to overarching strategic plans, mission requirements, mission outcomes, as well as we're considering agency budget submissions, right? Looking at 22 as well as 23. And I'll also add that the groundwork we laid over the last three years with the TMF board. So the board and the PMO are adjusting and we're scaling very quickly to meet the demand of the proposals as they're coming in. Uh, We need to make sure that we maintain the quality, the governance, and the rigor that made all of the prior awarded projects successful. We're increasing our capacity. We've added alternate board members, again, scaling the PMO and accelerating reviews without impacting the quality of what the board reviews. And that's Maria Rote. And Jason, do we know anything about the types of projects agencies are submitting to the board, the quality of what it is they want to put in with this money? OMB was very clear to say to agencies, look at these four areas, cybersecurity, high-value systems, uh, things that face the public, and things that are in the shared services world. Hey, can this program be used across your entire agency, whether the system is financial management or HR or a different type of data system? And then what system can be used across government? So they're definitely in that world. In fact, Matt Hartman, who's the Deputy Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, and a TMF board member said a lot of agency proposals, three of them, he said, move toward a zero trust architecture. Meanwhile, over at the Homeland Security Department, the the headquarters CIO, Eric Heisen, he talks about the four projects they submitted to the board. Those include uh, work to modernize how we process non-citizens arriving at the southern border and better exchange data across DHS components and other agencies. Uh, looking at the travel process uh, and as travel picks up again after uh, after the pandemic, um, how we can uh, make the experience of going through an airport uh, easier, more seamless and uh, more secure. Uh, looking at how some of our components access and analyze key data sets um, in conjunction with our new uh, Office of the Chief Data Officer. Uh, and then also looking at how we um, share uh, critical threat information uh, with our state and local law enforcement partners, which is 
only more important uh, as we uh, look to confront uh, the threats presented by domestic violent extremism. That was Eric Heisen, the Homeland Security Department's CIO, talking about the four projects he submitted to the Technology Modernization Fund board. And we're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, and Congress did appropriate this money, and some members of Congress have been highly interested in the TMF and in IT modernization in general. And so they're playing close attention. Have you heard any congressional reaction to how this whole billion-dollar kickoff has been going? The Senate and the House, you know, the Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee are definitely paying a lot of attention to this. I spoke, I got an a email from an aide to Senator Maggie Hassan, the chairwoman of the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Spending Oversight, who's been very involved in this technology oversight, the, the modernization effort. And that aid tells me they hope the TMF board prioritizes proposals that dispose of costly and inefficient legacy and IT systems. Uh, Senator Hassan has talked about in the past about having hearings and really looking deeper into this idea of why we agencies have so much legacy technology and what can they do to modernize it. I know the bigger, the main committee is definitely going to look at cybersecurity issues specifically related to the TMF proposals and more broadly than just the TMF. And then we also heard from Jerry Conley, who not only is the chairman of the Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations and a big supporter of technology and modernization in government, but he also was the co-author of the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, FITARA. And he says what he hopes is really agencies and OMB give clear guidance to the TMF funding and they monitor the potential challenges that they face. He said the subcommittee will be in touch with OMB and how agencies are using the TMF funding. They have not received a briefing since April, but they do expect to have one sometime soon. And I've heard from sources that OMB is planning on giving the Hill a briefing in the near future as well on what they received so far from the TMF in terms of proposals and their path forward. And what happens with the proposals next? I mean, they have to be evaluated and how does the money actually get allocated? And do we know how much of that billion will go to these roughly 100 projects? We don't know any of those details yet. We know that they have to go through this rigorous process. We know that OMB has promised and the board has promised to accelerate any proposal they got they received before June 2nd. So that's what they're working through today. Tom, if you digged into the Biden administration's budget proposal for 2023, you would see that they asked for about $500 million for the TMF. Just last week, the House Subcommittee on Financial Services and General Government allocated only $50 million for the TMF. So there's a, there's a little bit of a difference there. But if you look at the Biden administration's proposal and how much they would be carrying over into 2022, you saw about $800 million being carried over into 2022, which leads us to believe they think they will allocate or hand out, loan out about $200 million for this first tranche of proposals. Now, will that come to fruition? It's hard for us to say for sure. But if you kind of read the tea leaves a little bit, they think about $200 million. And while we have you, Jason, you're also writing about the latest attempt of the government to move its network backbones to IP version 6. We've only been hearing this for 20 years. So what's going to happen this time? Exactly. It's like the oil crisis of the 70s, Tom, right? We always were told we're going to run out of oil. And then all of a sudden, we, we continue to find more ways to have oil. That We heard the same thing about IPv4 addresses. We're going to run out of IPv4. Yet here we are 16 years later, and we still have uh, somehow making IPv4 work. Uh, the OMB did put out a memo last November, giving agencies deadlines. By 2025, they have to move to IPv6 only for about 80% of what they call their IP assets. So that's what their networks are running on, their websites and their systems that really reach the Internet. What's interesting about this deadline is while there is not a ton of progress, there's definitely been progress over the last 16 years. 
And what needs to happen between now and 2025 is really the big question. Are agencies setting themselves up? Is OMB going to be bringing down, if you will, the, the oversight hammer on these agencies to make sure they get there? Again, Maria Rote spoke at a, another event recently and talked about the, the planning cycles and the idea that it's in the budget. We have to ha- we're already into the 2023 planning for the budget. So that's got to be part of your uh, of, of agency's concept to say, okay, what do we need? How much money do we need to get to IPv6 by 2025? Other agencies, DOD and the IRS, two examples are moving in that direction. Uh, in this example, Tom, DOD has a pilot with the Defense Logistics Agency and Strategic Command that are doing IPv6 only network assets to really show, can this work? How could it work? And then take those lessons and expand it. The IRS, on the other hand, has moved what they call IPv6 enabled. So not IPv6 only, but they're running both IPv6 and IPv4, basically the old and the new. And they've done that for their wide area network, their local area network configurations. uh, And they have some other key infrastructures that are, again, IPv6 enabled. So there's progress being made. How quickly does that progress be made? We'll we'll have to wait and see. All right, so the pizza's in the oven is just half-baked. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.